What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning. Cults, mind control, orgies, slavery, and major medical malpractice. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. By Saturn, said the old man, I never heard of no pill that'd cure asthma in two or three hours. What kind of doctor do you be? Unbidden, the phonograph record-wise Hippocrates was only too glad to answer the question. The soldier of light is no ordinary physician, he announced in a shrill voice. He is a part of an organization of 600 who have dedicated themselves to the ultimate preservation of mankind, no matter the wars or explorations of space. There are 176 trillion human beings throughout this galaxy. There is roughly one physician for every 160 of these. There are only 600 soldiers of light. They give allegiance to no government, need no passport. So long as they do not engage in political activity, their persons are inviolate. An apprenticeship of 40 years is required to become a member of this society, and membership is not confirmed even then until the applicant has made an undeniably great contribution to the health and happiness of mankind. Members of the Universal Medical Society do not practice as do ordinary physicians. They accept no fee. The organization is self-supporting. You see before you my master, Soldier of Light 77, known as Methuselah. Old Doc Methuselah, 1947, by L. Ron Hubbard, written under the pen name of René Lafayette. Hello and welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm your host, Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. And today we're taking a look at Old Doc Methuselah, a collection of short stories, uh, science fiction short stories that are thoroughly mediocre uh, and unremarkable, except for the fact that they were written by... L. Ron Hubbard, who founded Scientology, Dianetics, and uh, all that crap. So uh, we'll be back after this. And we're back. Uh, so we both read this, am I right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've read all, uh, read the stories. I, I believe so. I read the, the collection I had had um, seven or eight stories in it. Is that, yeah, I assume yeah, that's, that's all of it? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, like, if we're... You know, I, I don't want to focus too much on the Scientology aspect of this, uh, but, you know, if we're never heard from again, you know what happened, basically. <laughs> um, it seems like people are being more open about Scientology these days. Um, if you don't know the whole history of L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, there are there's good material out there. Behind the Bastards did a good uh, multi-part episode about him, and um, he is mentioned in Astounding, the book that we've referenced a few times Um uh, in regards to um, um, John W. Campbell and that whole era of astounding, yeah, there's um, actually magazines. quite a bit on him in that. Yeah, yeah, he's. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating life that this guy led. Um, even putting aside all the stuff he made up about himself. Um, well, I mean, that's that's what <laughs> that's what yeah. he did. He was he was uh, possibly yeah, but the world's greatest con man, like the greatest con man in history in terms of like success and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he did um, like he did end up hanging out with Jack Parsons and uh, you know founding a famously a cult and uh, you know going to and he did like you know was he did do some stuff he was in World War Two um, and so forth but like yeah it, and he was part of that um, that inner circle of astounding so like um, the uh, the astounding book actually credits uh, Asimov Heinlein and Hubbard as being like the three central 
writers of the early uh, of astounding magazine during the the, the so-called golden age of science fiction um there's one or two others who uh played into it but those were the three that kind of built the magazine's reputa- uh, reputation uh according to uh according to astound uh the, the book um but yeah so i mean it is wild that he was a sci-fi writer <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that all this came out of him being a sci-fi writer um not not a particularly good one or an invested one. Like he didn't like sci-fi. Mm. Yeah, that's right. He was he was um his his real obsession was sailing apparently and and going to sea um and, and he, which of also westerns. He liked uh, cowboy mm-hmm. stuff. Right. One of the many things he yarns he spun about his life was about becoming a blood brother to the Blackfeet Indians and so forth. The book I, the book I uh, read with, which is like a, a copy from like the seventies <laughs> um, had uh, like uh, just un, un no, sorry, not that old. I guess it would have been the eighties, but it just uh, uncritically repeated all the stuff about how he, he had all these adventures and things before writing science fiction, including meeting the Blackfeet tribe and becoming inducted into their ways and so forth. Yeah, and going to to what was it, uh, China, and becoming indu- inducted right. into like the ancient Lama, you know? It's yeah, nonsense. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, it it the again the the afterward I read toned it down a bit, made it sound like was a little straightforward, like oh he traveled in Asia, you know? It didn't it didn't blow it out, completely out of proportion, but yeah. again, it's he went it's on a clearly... vacation to China as a child. <laughs> And he spun like that cl- into like. There's always like a little bit of grain of truth, but then he spins mm-hmm. it out into something crazy. Yeah, that's uh, which is you know that's how you <laughs> that's how you spin lies. It's just like in World War Two, he he was able to get Robert A. Heinlein's uh, lifelong allegiance by uh, claiming he'd been wounded in an attack on the Japanese, and he didn't really see any combat in World War Two at all. <laughs> but no, like, he was in charge of a, a ship for like a week, apparent or like. A short time. Uh, he claimed he sunk some uh, 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 one or two Japanese subs, but uh, there's no evidence he did, and he probably just bombed the seafloor. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and then he was he was shuffled off into a position of less authority where they could keep an eye on him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, kind of amazed that he was. <laughs> they kept him in the 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 service, but I guess. Uh, they needed people, you know, at that time. But yeah, and, and Heinlein being the guy who was like, ah, you know, support, Mr. Support the Troops, Heinlein, he, you know, he was a, a loyal defender of, of Hubbard for a long time. They Then they fell out over, what was it they fell out over eventually? I, I, was something else. I think it was about Dianetics and yeah, their, um, his and Campbell's obsession with it. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, what happened was um, the first draft of... Uh, Scientology, as it were, was a pseudo-scientific method of, uh, you know, delving into some, one's subconscious, one's forgotten uh, past. Supposedly, the things you, you know, the trauma of being born was a big factor, supposedly. Um, and also and there were... the idea that uh, uh, most traumas come from uh, surviving unwanted abort or like um, abortions from, from the mothers. Mm. So, like, you remember your mother trying to abort you, and that that causes all your problems. Yeah, yeah, all kinds of stuff about being in the womb that you know you've. Re- anyway, and Dianetics was a supposedly a, a a scientific system that would that would help you in that regard, and it somehow helped John W. Campbell. The again, he was the editor of uh, Astounding Magazine, so he became for a while he was a real believer in Dianetics. Yeah, um, he also might have uh, named it. Apparently. Uh, because it's the name is not something uh, really Hubbardian. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, it doesn't okay. sound like something he would have named, uh, but it does sound like something Campbell would have named, uh, probably yeah. relating it to cybernetics, which was right. a, um, a field he was interested in. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it was just yeah, it was it was sort of uh, early enough in in the history of uh, psychology and you know that that was something uh uh Campbell was absolutely fascinated with uh also seen in the foundation uh series by Asimov um with the idea that you can like that you could essentially s- 
turn psychology into a hard science with like mathematical proofs and so forth. Um, and it seems like that's what that, that's one of the premises of Foundation. As we said before, I think Campbell might be considered the co-author of a lot of Foundation in the early going. Um, and um, Diana, it sounds like Hubbard dreamed up Dianetics because he knew it was the the kind of thing Campbell would like. He basically he knew how to manipulate Campbell essentially. Um, and, and that got him on board. And then, so he became like one of the big evangelists for Dianetics, not Scientology, but Dianetics. Uh, again, they, they had a falling out eventually. Um, yeah. And then Hubbard turned it into a religion. <laughs> right. Exactly. Literally. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. And, became, uh, 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 even before that, uh, Hubbard was starting to go into like past life regression and stuff with it. And Campbell mm-hmm. wasn't on board with that. He was like, yeah, I'm okay with like memories from the point of conception, but anything before that is silly. Yeah, yeah. It's he's yeah, it, as it drifted away from like quote hard science, un- understandably Campbell got uh, less and less uh <laughs> into it basically. It also sounds like there was some stuff with his marriage falling apart and I don't know, there was a uh, Campbell's, I mean. Um well, uh, Hubbard's did too, but <laughs> Hubbard's did too. <laughs> but uh that was he, uh, a separate thing, he yeah. Kid, he uh, kidnapped his uh, daughter. Yeah. Uh, when his wife tried to get a divorce, then he mm-hmm. he choked out his wife and um, uh, threatened her to sign a thing saying that uh, he didn't kidnap their daughter. Uh, yeah, she did. Yeah. Yeah, it's a mess. He was pretty. Uh, he was pretty shameless uh, about some of the stuff he did. He definitely. Um, uh, he had a controlling streak, needless to say. Oh, um, I mean, yeah, that that's was putting it lightly. <laughs> putting it mildly, yeah. Um, but yeah, he, uh, anyway, so, uh, and just he kind of went around from person to person attaching himself as a, kind of a proto-guru uh, to a lot of uh, things. And he, he came at it, again, through, like, the scientific field of, of, of uh, like, the, the pseudoscience um was what he promoted but it just it did did just become a cult eventually um yeah and it's interesting that he wasn't really into science fiction early on um and like never really liked the genre because he incorporated so many science fiction elements into the religion yeah yeah up up to the xeno thing which came later but still that's like and yeah that stuff is very like it doesn't feel like someone who'd been like what, say what you will about his writing, like as a science fiction writer, you'd think he would come up with something a little better than what he did come up with because it's the stuff he the 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 science the sci-fi aspects of Scientology sound like someone who had never read much science fiction being asked to spin up a crazy science fiction story, um, but like to go ba- to go to these stories, I mean, there's. There's a level of polish to these stories that's pretty, uh, that's actually not bad. I, I, you know, I, I, I as you say, I, I'm not going to call these great stories, but I thought there's a, uh, I remember the, the, uh, the author of Astounding said, uh, she, she thought, uh, the do- old Doc Methuselah stories were, were, you know, sort of the high point of his writing career. And from what I've read, I, I agree, um, it's you know there's there's a there's a certain zippiness like it's got some of the same spirit as like the stainless steel rat or uh some of the the west i mean and it's it's another sci-fi western type yeah uh as we yeah, talked about i i must say like i i liked these more than i thought i would which isn't saying that much but it is mm-hmm. it is true because my only actual exposure to his to his real writing was the battlefield earth movie right <laughs> which yes. probably i mean i'm sure the i don't know is the book, the book better is, than the movie? The book, well, I have not read the book of Battlefield Earth. My understanding is that yes, it's better, uh, but it, it's still not great. You know, it's it's it, it it's very pulp level type stuff. He didn't really evolve much as a writer uh, from the from the forties and fifties. Um, but I, like, I think there's, I think some of the things that are ridiculous in the movie are not really, <laughs> they, they they're not in the books. I mean, the I think the cyclos are much more alien in the books. Uh, they're made human in the movie because they wanted John Travolta to play the head cyclo, right? Um, whatever his name is. Um, and uh, like, they're I think they're furry creatures who wear masks in the book. And anyway, there's it, it's a little bit, uh, you know, he's he's a somewhat better writer than that 
movie would have let you on, but he's still not like great. You yeah. know, he's kind of he's kind of the level of Peter Benchley kind of thing, or or you know Mario Puzo of like, except in the opposite direction. Like wrote it, writing a decent pulp novel that a good sci-fi, a good uh, director could have turned into something great, and it, instead it was taken the other way because it had to be. You know, it, like, it had to be done by people who were in the cult and don't have a lot of aesthetic taste for that reason, basically. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, the, 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 it is interesting that Battlefield Earth was, like, it, it, it sort of had a good opening weekend, didn't it? But then it faded pretty quickly. Because, um, I don't know. I, I've just sort of seen it. I, I have seen it. It's, it's a, it's a funny movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, like um, I say, it, it's, it's I, I find it entertaining, but it's it I, it's not good at all. No, <laughs> it's terrible. Like I say, most of the things that make it bad are movie things. I would say rather than the st- like yeah. the story's not great. Like you can see the bones of like a decent story there, I guess. Um, but it's yeah, like it's it's most of it is just very silly. Yeah, special a lot of effects Dutch angles and, for absolutely no reason. <laughs> cavemen flying planes and like and it's and they're they're literally like going ooh, 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 noises while they're flying the, like they're they're just humans who have like devolved a bit <laughs> um you know all that kind of stuff and so, john travolta's performance and i think he is a good course. actor in most cases but he's yeah. terrible in this yeah 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 it's uh you know he's it's his only villain if i'm not mistaken oh i well i guess do- uh face off yeah um, no he was really good in face off <laughs> Yeah, but which is I mean technically he's playing someone else. He he was the good guy, but he was playing the villain for most of anyway. Um but yeah, I think it's he's played uh, other villains. Anyway, possibly. Yeah, I, I don't know. I thought he's generally all-American hero, you know, good guy, but uh yeah. Uh it depends on how you think of uh his character in Saturday Night Fever too. Anyway, um but yeah, so I like I would say this guy was like if if he had not founded a cult and done all this other stuff, we would probably look at his stuff as being rather entertaining science fiction for the era because there's there's a lot of science fiction from that era we've encountered some of it um that is definitely worse than this like i think even in astounding i think because of the emphasis on uh like hard sci-fi and technical stuff uh i think there's a little less energy uh to a lot of the stuff that got published at that time this has like this has a character and a certain like way with the prose and it's, it's engaging, you know, it's, I, yeah. again, I'm not going to call it, you know, great, but it, but it, it's, it's, it's written better than, for instance, the, sh- I mean, that's, everything's written better than the Shaver mysteries, but to, you know, to compare <laughs> it to something of that era, um, that was just very hacky. It's, you, you can see it's very, that, that had very plotting pr- on top of everything else that had very plotting prose and just, and this is just more like, zippy uh fun you know comic booky type stuff it's yeah. it's it's, it's some, on par with the comic oh. books of the era i would say yeah sorry <laughs> I you were no there. go ahead um there and there's some fun like twists like the the premises of, like this is it's basically not in personality but it's like um house md in space it's like he yeah. solves uh, medical mysteries in space mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or you know deals with um yeah, usually there, there's some degree of a medical mystery going on. Like uh, in one case, he uh, he's figuring out a, a plague, and it turns out it was common measles, but mankind had you know lost their um, immunity to it. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Several of the stories are like, and it turns out the thing that was hurting them the whole time was the common cold. Not that, but you know yeah. what I mean. Like it's it's well, some. Yeah some twist of like oh we've forgotten about that uh particular thing the the one of them is uh, a guy who's uh supposedly enslaving people by giving them air like being the only provider of air uh even though doc walks around on the planet and he can breathe just fine and he's confused and it turns out he's you know he's giving them an allergen <laughs> that's making them making it very hard for them to breathe giving essentially yeah ex- giving them asthma yeah. yeah right and then he gives them benadryl and that makes them better basically or um is it Benadryl? Anyway, it's whatever you use to clear up uh, uh, breathing problems, essentially. And um, but there's some other like more slightly more complex medical ideas. It's n- it does not delve very heavily, even for you know the late 40s, into like medicine. It everything is medicine related, but it doesn't get that heavily into like 
anything too quirky medically. It, it it's, it's not like he st- he read a lot of medical journals. No. Even he, he, even I, of course he didn't read medical journals, but he didn't even <laughs> like you know try to find any weird medical facts or something and base it on that. It's just kind of based on what if we had magic rays that could do cool stuff that yeah would heal but people at the same time like uh, the medical shows i mentioned like they they don't actually do that much research <laughs> okay, they're, i mean they're, they're not terribly accurate either i mean it's it sort of it it's you're, you're not you know reading for the medical accuracy <laughs> well no but it's kind of like the idea of like well there's an interesting fact about the human brain is that if you touch it here people go see the color blue or like you know, i don't know like they the, the, they'll they'll build it around some interesting aspects of medicine basically usually i'm not and again i you're right i don't want like heavy duty uh you know no, uh, medical knowledge pumped into my drum i want it to be be about the people but you know there's often some kind of yeah you know, i haven't seen house so i can't say like if it's if it's anything like you know, the average detective story, which I believe was the idea, right? It's he's Sherlock Holmes, except he does medical stuff instead of um, detective stuff. But detective novels are always based around sort of weird little uh, quirks that, you know, thinking around corners, as it were. Mm-hmm. You know, a guy, oh, this guy died in the middle of a field. What happened? Oh, it was a boomerang that he threw and, that hit him in the head. Uh, what This guy, you know, uh, a snake fell out of a thing and bit him. and you know, Like that kind of thing. Like yeah. it's... It's based around thinking about possibilities that could happen, and presumably the medical aspect of that is is part of yeah. it as well. Anyway. I mean, I guess just the idea of this is kind of interesting, and if somebody who cared a little more wrote it, it would be pretty good. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a decent premise. Maybe let's let's talk about the premise and the story. Do you want to do you want to do yeah. that or shall I? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's it's the distant future. It's like a space. You know. Um, Earth is still around. It's still like in, in charge of stuff, but mankind is spread out throughout like several galaxies. Like it, I think they mention at least fifteen galaxies that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, it. I mean, this is basically a like you said, it's a space western. Like it's mm-hmm. it pretty explicitly at some points. There's yeah. like western accents and stuff, and like he goes to like a company town, but it's a company planet. Right, and even the idea of the old, the old uh, Southern doctor is kind yeah. of a cliche in those stories too. Yeah, but uh, because he's part of this, you know, sci-fi organization, uh, he's he's hundreds of years old, but he looks no more than twenty-five, um, and uh, he he gets um, he's sort of lackadaisical, like he doesn't really. Um, um, put much effort into things most of the time he's just sort of um coasting through life and then occasionally something perks his interest usually a woman uh very horny character for the yeah. 40s i don't know if he was horny for the i mean the pulp in yeah. general pulp leaned on that a lot <laughs> lots of sexy dames kind of thing yeah but i, I don't know like the he, he doesn't actually bet any of them no um so he, well, he doesn't break medical ethics that badly, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but often that that's what sort of gets him interested in a case or, or that sort of thing. Um, and he has with him, uh, and this is sort of both the my favorite aspect of these stories, um, Hippocrates is his uh, uh, alien companion and the least favorite. He is explicitly a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it does that thing where, like, Doc you know, doesn't approve of slavery, but he bought this uh, uh, slave due to being interested in his uh, biology, and he mm-hmm. ended up just following him around, and he got used to him. And Doc's tried to free him several times, but uh, Hippocrates is just, like, offended by the idea of being freed. Um, right. And, yeah, you can see why why Campbell was into this aspect of the story. Um, yeah. He, he uh, John W. Campbell, had a thing about uh, slaves who like the idea that slavery benefited black people right yeah it's and the, uh he, he yeah. was interested in stories where like a slave would re- would you know choose to go back to being a slave or whatever mm-hmm. um yeah he had some issues <laughs> yeah it's it's something this so this ties into actually something i mean this this is a whole digression uh, i did want to uh 
like point out some parallels. Well, oh, I wanted to point out some parallels with Star Trek that I'll that I'll talk about later. But um, but um, surprise, it, there is. De- yeah yeah of course but there's but there's an interesting aspect like there's definitely a thing in like mid-century sci-fi even into the 50s and so on where people are like into the idea of space slaves in outer space and that it's just a normal part of like uh like a spacefaring civilization i mean even star wars has it right and it's almost seen as like um well morally neutral right I'm sorry. Trek two with yeah. Orion. Well, that that was why I was mentioning Star Trek specifically, and and Star Trek, of course, you know, pretty quickly went. Oh yes, slavery's bad. But it's worth noting in the very first episode of Star Trek, uh, the main character Captain Pike is like, maybe I'll quit and become a slave owner. <laughs> like he'll he'll trade Orion slave girls, and like that that seems wrong for a Starfleet captain to be into trading slavery. And it was, it's just this kind of weird mashup of like, well, it's a different civilization than ours. So slavery's okay. And, and it, it really feels gross. Like it's this kind of, you know, thing of, of you can vicariously experience slavery as like an okay thing. <laughs> like it, it's it, sometimes it's dealt with as like, is what are the morality of this? And it's often like, Oh, cause we're doing the Roman empire in outer space kind of thing or something like that. But, um, and there's often an orientalist element to it. Um, but it is funny how that became a, just a whole trope much long after the actual question of slavery had long been settled in reality. And everyone, well, not everyone, but like, you weren't going to go out and say slavery is good. We should have slavery like in an open forum. You'd, you'd keep it to yourself. Right. Um, and yet it's a, it's a, it's a trope in, in science fiction that is weird. Like, and, and it's how it's, it's weird how rarely people comment on it as that, that, that seems wrong. That the slavers, of course, there's like bad guys who are enslaved, who are bad guys because they enslave and in some stories, but it's just weird how it's this thing that kind of hangs around the edges of stories and is dealt with uh, morally neutrally. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get you though. Uh, that, that actually reminded me of, uh, Quark's, uh, uh, popular holodeck program Vulcan Love Slave that's sort of playing yeah. on the the tropes that uh led to that Captain Pike scene in real life. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, it's he's like he's a gross guy who's selling that exact fantasy that we just talked about. Um I I mean assuming whatever love slave me if that doesn't just mean she's a slave of love or oh, yeah. he, I don't know. Do, I don't know. Do, I assume there was something problematic going on because it's quite... Uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> it is 100% problematic. There's no question about that. But that's within the actual... That's the fiction within the fiction. Anyway. But yeah, it's just funny how that's that's a whole thing that science fiction has had attached to it for so long. Yeah. So, yeah, that Hippocrates, though, is, is a fun character other than that. I, I, he's, he's a little furry guy. Wait, is he furry? I don't remember them saying he's furry. He's got four arms. Yeah, I think I was just imagining fur, but yeah, I I just realized that he's probably, they don't mention he's furry. But he's got six arms. Uh, He's extremely heavy despite being small. Um, And like really dense. He has uh, like vast superhuman strength. Uh, Mm. It's said at some points that water would kill him. Yeah, apparently water. Well, his his chemistry. It's one of these things where he's like he's not carbon based. He's based on some other element, and he eats gypsum, and uh, water would kill him. And he's got a different biochemistry than us, basically. Yeah. So the aliens and signs um, going to to acid planet with. Uh... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or the or or alienation for that matter. Although it's a little less silly in that one, um, where salt water okay. hurts them basically. But he's it, the thing about Hippocrates is, is if they just said he's his servant, because because the old idea with Hippocrates is that like yeah he's he's determined to be Doc's slave. Like it's it's yeah. I thought you when before I started reading them, I thought you said something about how he was like that was part of his culture was that he believed in enslaving himself. But I didn't see any references to the actual. Yeah, I, I assume too, because uh, I, I hadn't read them yet at the time. So. Um... I just like read the um the basic summary of the story. So, yeah, I I don't know. Like they don't really explain why he's so offended at the idea of freedom. Mhm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's clearly related to his alien mindset. Like he is written as fairly alien and not 
uh, like he's he's got a, a like a perfectly autodidactic memory. He can he never forgets things, um, and you know he doesn't. But also like limited imagination. So like in any even any, under any pressure whatsoever, he mostly just starts reciting uh, things that he knows, facts that may or may not be useful, uh, books that he's read. Um, you know, he'll just and and it's often to make sure Doc takes care of himself, like or or regulations that Doc isn't following or whatever. Yeah, Doc uh, is very absent-minded and well, just yeah, he he requires that this little guy to to take care of him. There's sort of a Jeeves and Wooster thing going on in some degrees, though. Yeah, Doc actually yeah. has competency in you know medical yeah. stuff. That's right. It is a bit Jeeves and Wooster. Speaking of uh, Hugh Laurie stories, uh, it does uh, it does have a bit of that where the uh, but yeah, like the 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 servant is in this case not uh, very uh, you know he's he doesn't take the upper hand. He's not the leader, uh, but he does clearly have competence that the the that Doc lacks in some ways, and they're you know they make a team. They make a good team, basically. Yeah. Um, the oh uh, yeah, a few things. One I wanted to the. Um, Perfect Recall thing is interesting because that was a major obsession with uh, with Dianetics and Scientology that uh, becoming clear would give you Perfect Recall. Right. Like at one point when they announced the first uh, clear person, it was a woman, and like people in the audience just asked her basic questions like, "What did you eat on such and such a date?" or, you know, yeah. what happened this morning, and like she couldn't remember. So, yeah, um, yeah. That, and they they had to explain that away later i can't remember what the explanation was well, um, yeah of course some sort of psychic block or something <laughs> yeah you weren't doing it right you know yeah it's it's th- well okay so that's something to get into like you do see um you know again you wouldn't read this and go well this is this is a terrible guy but there are definitely times when doc is like well i'll put something in the water supply that'll erase everyone's memory or <laughs> uh he hits people with like dart guns that like mentally compel them to do things and so he's, he doesn't have a lot of ethical issues with so like they're the one of the rules of his uh his order of doctors who are like the best doctors in the galaxy who have all these top secret medical knowledge which apparently they retained because it's too dangerous to give to everyone else uh they're a little vague about that but um it I does sound like mortality was some was part of that Immortality might be part of it. They do talk about germ warfare getting out of control a few hundred years back. Um, so I think that might be part of it as well. Like they just, they've kept the, uh, they, they've prevented people from like developing, you know, uh, uh, diseases as weapons basically, which makes sense. Um, but so they have, all, but they have all this special medical knowledge and there's only, I think 700 of them in the universe. 600. Yeah. 600. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they have it, you know, they're, they're very, you know, and they're, they're respected most of the places they go, although there's a few places people haven't heard of them. They're called Soldiers of Light, which is actually a weird name for doctors. It doesn't really convey that they're doctors to me. Um, and uh, also yeah, the, so, the Universal Medical Society. Right. They part that's, of their. Yeah, that's their um, individuals. They're called Soldiers of Light, and that's the organization. Right. And, uh, but yeah, like he'll, he'll, they have a very strict code, which is that you're not supposed to interfere with politics as a doctor. You're just supposed to help people in a medical uh, context. Now, of course, sometimes a medical context can lead to him getting involved in politics, such as, for instance, when there's a plague ship at one point, uh, and it, it, like an entire Navy comes out to, to, uh, first to let them go, and then realizing they've made a mistake, made a mistake showing up to start, uh, blasting away at all the planets that might be infected by this thing, and that obviously interlaps, overlaps uh, politics and uh, and medicine. But the first story is him supposedly, you know, bending, if not outright breaking the rule of you're not supposed to do anything political. Uh, you're just supposed to heal people. Um, but yeah, yeah like sort that, of like the prime directive thing in Star Trek. Like it depends right. on the, like a lot of Kirk stories are about how he's right to bend it, and Picard mm-hmm. stories are often the opposite. Yeah, well, that's exactly uh, why I wanted to mention Star Trek. Like, this does read a bit like, boy, that's very Prime Directive esque. And I mean, so it was, it was a. I think it, that that kind of thing had shown up in sci-fi here and there before Star Trek uh, made it a thing. I don't think it's completely original to Star Trek. Um, I did want to bring up in that 
uh, context that um, there are some weird parallels between L. Ron Hubbard and and Gene Roddenberry. I, you get the definite impression that Roddenberry uh, wanted to be part of that squad of uh, Golden Age sci-fi writers like Hubbard was. Uh, and Roddenberry actually had way more success in Hollywood, so it didn't necessitate him. But he had the same tendency to create a cult <laughs> that Hubbard did it's just it wasn't quite as it wasn't quite as awful that it became much more harmless um but like if you look at what Roddenberry did when he had you know the ear of Trekkies he did start to sort of manipulate them in ways to get what he wanted um that has some of the same hallmarks of what Hubbard did with the uh, Scientology later on uh, I I joked on Blue Sky a while back that um uh Roddenberry is like Hubbard if he was slightly better at writing and slightly worse at starting a cult, basically. <laughs> um, and uh, there, yeah, like there really is this whole sort of weird uh, resonance in terms of what Roddenberry did. Anyway, so so the idea of the Prime Directive and some of the some of the kind of ethical things that uh, Doc falls into, and Doc just being a bit of a Captain Kirk type figure. I mean, again, in many ways. Kirk and the whole Star Trek scenario was an amalgam of a lot of pulp sci-fi things that had been around since the time, uh, taken in like a new direction for the 60s. Um, and this feels like it might be part of the sort of root source of one of the things that, you know, the, the classic pulp sci-fi things that Star Trek was drawing from. Um, in my, you know, it's, it's, it's ethical dilemmas in, on planets for people who are technically not supposed to interfere, but are also supposed to help. So it's got that parallel with Star Trek, I would say. Yeah. And in that one with the, um, uh, plague ship, um, how he gets out of it is he infects the, uh, military people with Mm -hmm. the, it's revealed to be the common cold, but he makes them think that they got, uh, the, um, uh, virus, Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, uh, through that manipulates them into actually caring about getting a cure. Yeah. Yeah, they they definitely, like, by the time you've gotten past the first novel, there or the first, first book, they're definitely playing, de- they, Hebert is definitely playing down the whole, oh, you're not supposed to interfere in politics. But you can also make the argument of, like, if you're going to be, you know, saving lives, you're and, and it is plague disease-related, uh, you might... Loop, loop, jump through some hoops in order to be able to do your job, which in this case is to cure people, because the army was just going to start incinerating everyone who had the plague. Um, so, I mean, that's technically him violating his oath, but it's also enabling him to do the job he's supposed to do. So, I mean, I, I think that's a, I think that's definitely breaking the rules, but, I mean, of course, we're going to cheer for it because it's saving everyone's life. And if you're a doctor, you're job is to save lives so it does make a certain amount of sense but he definitely gets into like you know i'll do whatever it takes to straighten things out at this place and this place as you say he 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 faces a lot of company towns and uh places where there's a a local bully or or robber baron and he has there's two or three stories that are like that and the you know the 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 issue is met like it's medical stuff is coming up but it's the real issue is that there's a robber baron that has to be dealt with basically and as um, you say it's westerns in space in that yeah. yeah um like more explicitly than some of the ones we read that were actually billed as westerns in space like uh this is far more a western in space than um um uh oh sorry blanky on the name um um, uh, which the uh, uh, Northwest Smith stories? Northwest Smith sorry I, I was blanking yeah. on the first the Northwest part um, yeah yeah um, yeah those weren't those weren't as western as you would have thought from yeah. the title really yeah Planet for Texans was definitely a western in it yeah space, but uh, it's yeah. almost it's almost like the reverse because it's like uh, Hubbard wrote a western in space because you know he was being asked to write for Campbell who didn't really like that stuff but he was able to sort of sneak in through the back door of the stuff he actually cared about whereas Northwest Swiss feels like it's because there's a venue for you know there's a call for westerns in outer space <laughs> uh, like she sort of set it up as if it was that and then went in a whole other Cthulian you know Lovecraft direction yeah uh, so it's like it was such a it was such a, a genre that you could like say oh i'm gonna write in that genre and then just do riff on your own 
direction with it. Uh, whereas today, if you were going to do a Western in space, you'd do a Western in space. People would know what you were doing, you know? Yeah. Uh, so there's one story where um, it, it turns, it seems that uh, Doc, when he has like an idea, he scribbles it on his cuffs, which are removable, like old old cuffs, you know, you could take them off, uh, button them off the shirt. Um, so he had like just a collection of old cuffs that had writing all over them. And it uh, and uh, Hippocrates decides to to burn these because he th- thought that they w- didn't serve any purpose because Doc never looked at them, but Doc needed one of them, so he you know, mm-hmm. um, it caused some conflict between the two. Then at the end of the story, it turned out that uh, Hippocrates actually had like looked at all of them, and he has perfect recalls, so like it you know, none of the information was lost. Yeah, exactly. That was a clever ending to that episode, uh, that story. I thought, uh, just the idea, like, because you, you, you should have, I should have thought of that. We know Hippocrates has perfect recall; <laughs> it's been well established. Uh, but you just don't think of that. Oh yeah, of course he saw it and he could remember everything that he needed for that. It wasn't re- directly related to the story either. It would have been better writing, I think, if it had literally helped him solve the problem that he needed in front of him at the time. But it was yeah. just sort of a side gag at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that story involved uh, the the information he wrote down was uh, reviving the brain through like reviving memories through like uh, electronically manipulating a dead person's brain. Right. Um, yeah. And he he actually um, uh, it, it seems that he's sort of rediscovered because he came up with an idea for how to do that, and it seems in the story that he's uh, figured it out again in in the the ending thing. To, to blackmail the the villain into revealing that he had dirt on him. Then it turns out after that that he actually didn't remember how to do it, and he just faked the whole thing. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of fun. Like I, I I sort of like the the con artist aspects of them. Like yeah yeah, the, there's uh, a lot of giving people there... colds to make them think they were sick. That sort of thing. I, I would say the thing that elevates the stories to a large degree is that there's always a bit of a twist. Like it's not always the the most complicated twist in the world. Uh, they're in many ways they're very simple stories, but there's something that like kind of, and then, ta-da! Like there's a prestige, yeah. as they would say, based on the from the from the movie, right? Like there's a there's a turn and a and a reveal. It's not just like, uh, and then I shot all the aliens and went home, you know. So. That like he he's got he's got the the rhythms and the structure of that kind of clever pulp sci-fi story and again like it it feels very comic book in a lot of ways like it, ironically I would say this predates a lot of what we would think of as comic book storytelling but like it does have that Marvel comics feel in a lot of ways yeah. uh, when you read like early Marvel comics they've got that kind of vibe to them of like there's got to be some kind of little twist at the end even if it's not a huge thing um, you know there's there's something that you know, and, and and 50s sci-fi movies, of course, always did the, you know, and then at the end, the alien was brought down by common salt water or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, it's the same thing, right? Yeah, like almost every episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, no, the, well, The Twilight Zone was legendary for having twists. This is much, this is yeah, not yeah, quite this as... Yeah, yeah, smaller twists, yeah. Sm- yeah smaller right. scale. But it's the thing, and then people like, um, I think it was Gardner Fox who did Adam Strange. There was always some kind of, like he found the scientific means to destroy the villain. And it's, again, it's like I was saying, it's this idea that there's a, you know, a clever little science fact, like they, there were sodium-based monsters, and so he sprayed them with chlorine and they turned into salt. Like that kind of thing, you know what I mean? Like it's riffing on some science fact. It's almost semi-educational, right? So, (laughs) well, (laughs) that kind of vibe. No, this, in this case, this isn't educational, but it's like, it's based on, you know, some weird little quirk of, knowledge essentially you mentioned stainless steel rat earlier and and there yeah it is sort of i think those are a lot better and a lot more Mm -hmm. like the the character's a lot more fun like he's more thought out as like a personality and the stories just are better written but uh there, there are similarities in like the basic like setup of the world and that sort of thing yeah yeah yeah, that's the, yeah. It's it's. You, I I would say they're drawing from the same well, basically. Like it's that 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 was the kind of pulp sci-fi. It, and I noticed that it's post World War II pulp uh, that has that kind of vibe, that kind of charming, smirky, uh, dashing hero, 
slight, slightly, I guess Han Solo-ish vibe um, of like a roguish hero. And like there's something a bit clever and cutting about the stories. It isn't just straightforward square-jawed heroism. It's like there's something a little bit quirky about it you know like that that seems to have been big in the 40s and 50s um as opposed to the 30s where it was a bit more straightforward a bit more po-faced i would say yeah um yeah and we've mentioned that the doc is sort of like is is a little bit absent-minded he's is um uh uh a little bit like lacks motivation most of the time he wants to you know go fishing instead of solve a, a case because it's not interesting mm-hmm. enough for him that sort of thing yeah um and it, it's interesting contrasting that with uh hubbard's you know the personality that he projected in his real life like as like the the ultimate he-man who like did everything mm-hmm. like there, yeah. there's there's aspects of that in doc like he is like a good fighter he's like a brilliant mind when he needs to be but mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it is interesting how it's hubbard it wasn't just like this isn't a Mary Sue character, which you would sort of expect from a from Hubbard. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I, I, it felt felt like he was. I I think, and I think this is a thing with a lot. You can't necessarily just read stories written by people who we know weren't good that that we know weren't good and just kind of go oh yeah well this obviously means this and this always means that because a lot of the times in the in the case of someone like Hubbard he's always trying to like not pander but ingratiate himself with you when he when he writes and i think in this case he's like smart enough to know what makes for an entertaining story and what makes for a charming hero so he's not going to like put in the ideology of scientology in the books as uh, like that's what's good you know I, I he's going to say the ideology i just meant like the like how hubbard presented himself like e- even in the 30s and 40s like as like a guy who's just amazing like he's he's just hmm. Like, at, at all times, just the absolute best a human being right. can be. Well, but, but it's also, like, I think he understood that if the if the protagonist is, like, too perfect and flawless, it's not... I think, I, I think that's part of what makes that era of pulp notable, is that they understood that if the hero was just completely square-jawed, po-faced, and... Uh, you know, Doc Savage, basically. Um, then it it got a bit eye rolling. People, audiences were getting sophisticated enough that they wanted to see a human hero who had his own foibles and quirks. And yeah. you know, of course, he'd always win the day, but he, you know, he wasn't he wasn't unstoppable. He wasn't any any you know. He had a bit of a self, sense of humor about himself, and he could occasionally get you know dunked on. Something something would happen to make him look a bit foolish or a bit silly. You know, I think that kind of character. Uh, really emerged from uh, genre storytelling after World War II. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I think I that's. I think Hubbard that. knew and that, and he and he went for that basically. Yeah, I so. I agree, and uh, I think I'll reverse my statement. It's interesting that L. Ron Hubbard knew this and still presented himself the way he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he didn't. Like he had no humility in his real life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's different when you're talking to someone one on one, right? Like you're, you know, if you're trying to reach a mass audience, it's a little bit different. And it's it's important to remember a lot of Scientology well, about his, in his biographies that he wrote for himself, you know. Yeah, I suppose. Again, I, but it, but but like you look at Robert E. Heinlein, who really did do a lot of crazy stuff and some other people who had weird uh you know biographies and stuff like that so it's not as far-fetched to be able to to claim all these weird things happen to you you know like there are people who actually did go through some of the stuff although as you say hubbard is always like he conquered the field of this and won a million awards and then moved on to something else you yeah know? he was a nuclear yeah. scientist and uh <laughs> yeah uh, he he, yeah. he claimed that before anybody knew what that what new he claimed he was into that before nuclear was a thing anybody mm. knew about. Uh, <laughs> it was weird when he showed up in Oppenheimer and it was just like, "Hey guys, I don't know." What <laughs> was, yeah. Um. Well, as we say, we did know he hung around with Jack Parsons, who was the rocket guy, so that came along later. But yeah, that was uh, yeah. The, actually, that that was in like '48. Like that's around the time he was writing these. Yeah. I mean, again, at, he, at he least written he written one of these stories while he was doing the moonchild ritual. With the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at least he knew. You know, again, I We've say he had an interesting that, right, life. The show. Uh, I'm pretty sure we did. Uh, we've done that a few, t- like when we talked about John W. Campbell and okay, some of the other yeah. things. Uh, and is well, I think we talked about when we talked about Alistair Crowley actually. Okay. Um, yeah. 
yeah, but yeah, it's it's that whole intersection of people I, is is really weird and like it really needs to be that needs to be like a movie about like maybe Jack Parsons. I don't know who specifically you would make the movie about, but like the way it went from like magic with a K to rocket science and and all these people were involved is just is a very weird story. But Hubbard, at least he knew it. Like I say, he's an, he had an interesting life. He knew who to ingratiate himself with is why <laughs> he had an interesting life, you know? So anyway. Um, so I'll, I'll admit, I wanted to read this, the, these stories because I wanted uh, it as with a lot of things uh, for my comic, uh, the Apex Society. Uh, haven't worked out the details yet, but I wanted to come up with a Hubbard stand-in who was also sort of related to one of his characters, and this seemed to be like his most reoccurring character. So I've I've sort of come up with ideas for how to make like a Doc Methuselah stand-in who's also L. Ron Hubbard himself Hubbard, in one, yeah, some ways. Right. So like a space con man sort of thing. Yeah. A space con man who starts a cult somehow? I don't uh, know. <laughs> he, he will at some point in the... Yes. Uh, in the overall span of the uh, uh, mm. timeline, mm. I was well, thinking I always... circuitology, but that might be too dumb. Uh, <laughs> it's dumber than Scientology. I don't know. It's a pretty silly no. I name, mean, no too like is. close. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like a little too on the nose. <laughs> mm. Mm. We'll brainstorm after the show. Well, our time is up, and we must blast off for yet another medical adventure in a distant galaxy. We've been immortal space doctor Philip Rice and obedient alien slave Adam Prosser. Our producer was Alex Ross, one of the 600 members of the Soldiers of Light, and our theme song was by Jack Furick, who performed it on a visiograph. Whatever that is. Uh, Just a reminder, we do both have Patreons, which help pay for hosting costs and whatnot, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations, comics, among other things. So just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. You can also follow us on um, Blue Sky uh, uh, at uh, WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for Adam or Spear Hafok with an F for me. Uh, So until next time, stay healthy.